All right. Uh, before we get into our study this evening, uh, a little bit of calendar work. Three things that I want to mention. Uh, first, this coming Sunday, December 23rd, uh, we are going to be having our evening service at 7 o'clock, but it will be a Christmas carol service. We're just going to sing Christmas carols, and there will be cookies, hot cider, and cocoa available after the service. So that's next week. The following Sunday is the 30th of January, and we are not going to be having an evening service. And then the following Sunday after that is Jan excuse me, 30th of December, and then the following one is January 6th. And that is when we will restart our verse-by-verse -verse series. We will begin again in 1 Kings, and we'll begin again at a new time of 6 o'clock. I don't know about you, but any later than that, I'm not going to want to leave the house in this deep, dark winter. So for the winter, we're going to move the service an hour ahead, January 6th, 1 Kings, 6 o'clock. Okay? All right, tonight we're going to finish our, uh, our series that we called Did God Really Say? Looking at the Doctrine of Scripture. Um, tonight, uh, we are going to be looking at the power of Scripture. Uh, and in doing so, I want to just remind you of two things. One is that following the sermon tonight, there will be a time of question and answer. It's text-in based, anonymous, and so if you have questions over the course of the service, uh, you can see a number right at the top of the screen there. You can just text in, and we'll take some time to answer some questions uh, right afterwards. Um, the second uh, thing I want to point out as we get started tonight is that as we find ourselves in Hebrews tonight, we have spanned many different types or genres of scripture, um, basically from, from the beginning to the end. We've read from Deuteronomy, uh, we've looked at the prophet Isaiah, we've heard out of the mouth of Jesus from the Gospel of Matthew, um, we've looked at the uh, writings of Paul, and tonight we turn to the book of Hebrews. And to be fair, we could continue, we could keep going, we could look at Psalm 119, uh, we could turn to the book of Revelation, there's many other places we could go, but tonight we're going to finish uh, in the book to the Hebrews. Uh, it's in the New Testament, if you have a Bible, go ahead and open it up there. Uh, if you didn't bring a Bible tonight in the pew in front of you, you'll find a black-bound Bible. There's an index right in the front uh, where you can find the New Testament book of Hebrews. The book of Hebrews is unique in the New Testament because although we put it with all of the epistles, the letters of the church, uh, when you open it up or when you turn to the end of it, you don't find... Um, the epistolatory criteria. You don't find the earmarks of a letter. There's no addressee. There's no audience that it's written to. There's no greetings. There's none of the things we find in the other letters. In fact, I would suggest to you the best way to understand the book of Hebrews is like a transcription of a sermon. Okay? This is a, uh, a discourse that was given uh, publicly by a speaker and then written down for posterity's sake. Now, uh, although we do not know exactly who the author is, although there are some interesting theories out there, and of course I have my pet one, um, we uh, do have a general feel for who the audience is. The audience that this uh, sermon was given to, if you will, is clearly Jewish Christians, people who have grown up in Judaism, uh, expecting the Messiah, have discovered that Jesus is who he promised to be, became Christians, and now they're at a point in church history, in the decades that follow Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection, where they're starting to experience the difficulties 
of that position. Uh, specifically, probably the two biggest pressure points is the interaction they're having with their own community, family, friends, and neighbors, and the hostility they're experiencing there, and then probably the persecution they're starting to experience from the Roman government on top of that. And so what seems to be happening is a lot of Jews are tempted to go back to Judaism to surrender Christianity and Jesus and all that it maintains and goes back. And so the author's main point for the entire book is that Jesus is the pinnacle and the culmination of everything in the Old Testament. And to go back would be to forsake the reality for the shadow. And he also wants to warn them of the danger there. In fact, one of the strongest warnings uh, he talks about here is to walk away from Jesus would be like shipwreck for your soul. He speaks very strongly. Um, now, the passage that we're looking at tonight uh, has to do with this trajectory that I mentioned of recognizing things that happened in the Old Testament that we're looking forward to a greater happening in Jesus Christ. Um, but we're not actually going to look um, at the text and what it's talking about as much as we're going to look at how the text talks about what it's talking about. If I could give you an illustration, generally when we open the Bible like this, consider another epistle. When we open Paul's letter to the Romans, we get a window called Paul's letter to the Romans into truths about who God is. And we have to keep that window in mind because knowing the audience that Paul is speaking to and the speaker and the circumstances that it was written in all helps us to understand the view. Okay? But tonight, we're going to focus on the window and not so much the view. Tonight, I want to look at, if you will, the, uh, the moral logic that the author of Hebrews uh, uses to come to his points. Or to put it another way, I want to look at his presuppositions. I want you to see uh, how this author views and handles scripture. In fact, notice how unique this is, okay? Uh, if the Bible is all the word of God, then here, uniquely, there are other places where this is the case too, but it's helpful for this reason. Here, we have a Bible author operating as a Bible reader, okay? And so the value for us is then we get to see how the authors of Scripture view Scripture. In fact, it's a little bit more meta than that, okay? Um, a few years ago, I got involved in this uh, collectible card game, but not like Pokemon or anything like that. Uh, this was a card game of puzzles called Perplexity, and they were high caliber puzzles and riddles. In fact, as far as I know, the first season had a card called the labor, the 13th labor, you know, like the labors of Hercules. Uh, and last time I checked, they were still trying to brute force the code, on this, uh, uh, the code on this card with computers all over the world. They still hadn't solved this thing. Another card in that season was just a picture of a middle-aged Japanese man with written in Japanese beneath it, find me. And as far as I know, that one's never been solved. But in the second season, I started playing and there was a particular card I remember solving and here's all it was. It was just a couple of words. It said, Aristotle, Socrates, Joseph Heller, that's the author of Catch-22, and then question mark. That was it. That's all the card said. And so where, uh, this is a good suggestion for you, but a good place to start when you're doing puzzles like this is Google. And so I was like, what happens if I just Google these three people of history? 
And the first thing I discovered, and actually I left out a name, sorry, it's Aristotle, Socrates, Rembrandt, Joseph Heller, question mark. Okay. The first thing that I discovered is a painting by Rembrandt called Socrates Ponders the Bust of Aristotle, which is exactly what it sounds like. It's a picture of Socrates holding a bust, you know, a half statue of Aristotle and thinking about it, painted by Rembrandt. Okay. As I continued to look, I found a book by Joseph Heller called Picture This. And in Picture This, uh, it's a novel about that painting, Rembrandt's painting. Okay. So now I'm starting to get a feel for the puzzle, but the answer took me a long time to come to. As it turns out, the answer to the puzzle was the name of the puzzle creator that was written at the bottom of the card. Right? Do you see how that works? There were all these layers and levels. What we look at tonight is like that. And so before we even read the text, I want to lay out the layers and levels, okay? The first place has to do with what we read about in the book of Numbers, okay? God has brought Israel out of Egypt with a mighty hand in the Exodus. He's made them promises to bring them into the land of Canaan. They get to the very border of the land. They see the inhabitants of the land, and they decide there's no way we can do this, and they decide to not enter in, okay? That's... That's the Socrates of this puzzle. That's the first level, okay? But then he also quotes here from Psalm 95, which is written by King David hundreds of years after the, uh, after the timeline of Numbers chapter 13 and 14, okay? And so David is also looking at that event, but speaking to his audience, but what we have here, as we'll see, is the author of Hebrews speaking to his audience through that lens, looking at that event. And if we want to push it even further, if we want to solve for the question mark, we are looking at the text of his sermon to his audience about Psalm 95, looking at numbers, okay? That's the big picture of where we're going. Now, the reason why I lay that out is because we're going to cover a pretty lengthy section here. We need the whole thing, um, but it would be easy for you to get lost in it as we read it. So let me do one more thing before we read it. Basically, here's the argument that the author of Hebrews makes. It has a couple of pieces, okay? First is, it was unbelief and disobedience that kept Israel from experiencing the rest God had promised. Second, in David's day, he exhorts his people to enter into that rest and warns them of making the same mistake, which not only shows uh, that there's something to be learned from the book of Numbers, but also that the rest that was promised is not just entering into the land of Canaan, is not just enjoying the promised land, because remember, David is living there. And yet he still sees that rest as being open and available in his day and the danger of missing out as possible. And so he argues then that that rest is, like I said, a lot more than just settling into the land of Canaan. In fact, he reaches all the way back into Genesis and talks about when God rested on the seventh day. And he says, this rest has been a part of what God has had for humanity for all of history. Okay. And then his goal, his point, his purpose in saying all of this is basically to say the same danger of unbelief and disobedience is available to us today, to his audience, okay? That's the argument. Now let's read the text together and we'll pray. We're gonna start in chapter three, verse seven, and we're going to read all the way through chapter four, verse 13. Let's read together. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion, 
on the day of testing in the wilderness, where your fathers put me to the test and saw my work for 40 years. Therefore, I was provoked with that generation and said, they always go astray in their heart. They have not known my ways. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it's called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end, as it is said, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts, as in the rebellion. For who were those who heard and yet rebelled? Was it not all those who left Egypt, led by Moses? And with whom was he provoked for 40 years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient? So we see that they were unable to enter because of unbelief. Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. For good news came to us just as it did to them. But the message they heard did not benefit them because they were not united by faith with those who listened. For we who've believed enter that rest as he has said, as I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Although his works were finished from the foundation of the world, for he has somewhere spoken of the seventh day in this way, and God rested on the seventh day from all his works. And again in this passage, he said, they shall not enter my rest. Since therefore it remains for some to enter it, and those who formerly received the good news failed to enter because of disobedience, again he appoints a certain day today, saying through David so long afterward, in the words already quoted, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. So then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of the soul and spirit, of the joints and marrow, of the discerning of the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him whom we must give account. Let's pray. Father, as we study your word tonight, I pray that it would be what it says it is here, that it would do its living and active work, that it would pierce uh, to the deepest parts of who we are. I ask as well, Lord, that we would learn about um, the power of your word of God and how it is we go about accessing that in faith and the danger, therefore, of drifting, of disobedience, and of unbelief. We ask that you would teach us tonight in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. As I mentioned earlier, it's a lengthy argument. Um, but if you take the time and read through it, it's, it's pretty easy to follow. But I, I wanted to just nail down um, one important point here, which is uh, that he sees Psalm 95 as David looking at this rest and seeing something still available. 
right? We get that right in verse 7. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts in the rebellion. And then as it goes on, it goes into this talk of rest. And so he's speaking to his own generation and making that same claim. Okay. That gets us on the inside track of what I want to talk about tonight. When it says here that the word of God is living and active, uh, when it walks through here and applies the word of God at all of these junctions, okay, in the days of Moses, in the days of David, in the days of Hebrews, okay, it starts to let us in on uh, what we mean when we say that the Bible is powerful and ultimately, as we've seen over and over again in this series, it's bound up in who God is. So the first thing I want you to notice here is the statement in verse 7. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says. Now, we already know, because we've read further on, uh, that the author of Hebrews is fully acquainted with the fact that this quotation comes from a psalm written by David. He tells us as much in the next chapter. But here, he speaks of the words of David found in the poetry of Israel, part of their psalm book, Psalm 95, and he says, it is the voice of the Holy Spirit that you are hearing. Therefore, the Holy Spirit says. He sees the words of David as the words of God. When we say that the word of God is powerful, we mean that it's powerful because it is God's word. It doesn't have power innately and inherently on its own. It has power because it's connected to God as the speaker. Now, we'll come back to that in just a second. But I want you to understand that here, what this author does, identifying the writings of David with the voice of the Holy Spirit, is not uncommon. In fact, in the book of Hebrews, 23 quotations have God listed as the speaker. Okay. On top of that, four are found in the mouth of Jesus. And another four, as we see here, attributed directly to the Holy Spirit. When the author of Hebrews here talks about the word of God, what he means by word of God is the word that came from, that began with, that was spoken by, that was said by God. Now, as I mentioned earlier, that's what we mean when we say the word of God is powerful. It's powerful because it's God's word, because it's connected to him. Uh, in fact, we have a good illustration of this in verse uh, 13 of chapter 14. Here it says, for the word of God is living. Now, we'll come back to that. That's a pretty striking statement. It's not a usual way we describe a book. It's not a usual way that we talk about writing. But what I want to draw your attention to is that this word of God is living because it's the word of the living God. In fact, the author of Hebrews here in this passage identifies God with just that phrase. Uh, if you look back, I should have underlined this. Verse 12 of chapter 13, take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. And then he finishes this passage by saying, for the word of God is living. Those two go hand in hand. 
okay? In fact, I want you to notice something even more significant back in verse 7. He doesn't just say that this psalm is a record of the word of God. He says it is the Holy Spirit speaking. But the other thing I want you to notice is the tense. Look at it again in verse 7. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, not said, the author of Hebrews doesn't just see Psalm 95 as something spoken by the Holy Spirit, but something the Holy Spirit is speaking, present tense, to his audience sitting in the pews. Okay. That idea, first off, just super practical, really basic, makes the Word of God relevant. Relevant. Because it's not just a record of things God said to some people at some time. It is God speaking to us. When we open the Bible and we read it as a church, God is speaking. When we open the Bible and we read it by ourselves, we should come listening for the voice of God. That is what this implies here. Now, notice here uh, that in doing so, we can stand on the same ground in the same way that he takes Psalm 95 and says that today, that door is still open. That rest is still available. In the same way, we can read verse 7, therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, and put it in the present tense today. Okay. Think of it like this. Much of what he wants to talk about here involves promises. Okay. The promises that we experience in life are directly connected to the character and person of the promise maker. Okay. In fact, I'm sure we've all had the experience of promises that have been broken for a litany of reasons. Okay. Let me just suggest to you a few. Maybe the person who made the promise just didn't have the character to keep it. Right? And so it was, it was said, it was put on the table, but whether they had no intention of keeping it or something else came up or something was more attractive or there was another deal on the table, it just fell through. Okay. Another thing that can go wrong with promises is we can make promises that we are incapable of making come true. Right? I mean, just let me remind you all that a good deal of your life is circumstantial and not under your control. And so you've probably even been in this experience where you've given your word to do something, but that was banking on some circumstance. Okay. You were planning on paying your brother back for the loan because this money's coming in and then you lose your job and now, right? These types of things. Okay. But there's another one, and it's relatively important. Sometimes promises aren't kept because the promise makers are dead. Right? Promises die with their promise makers. The thing that makes the promise of Psalm 95 relevant today, the thing that makes it the living word is because it's connected to the living God. Okay. Now this is not something that should be um, done tritely. It is something that can definitely be oversimplified. Recognizing that all the Bible is for us doesn't change the fact that not all the Bible is to us. Okay, and so we don't just go, okay, God made a promise to Abraham, so he must have meant it for me. God made a promise to Sarah, so it must be for me. God said that he was going to give Solomon abundant wealth, so that must mean everybody. Okay. 
And that's not what we see the author of Hebrews do here. He shows and argues and recognizes broad promises here available this point in the line, this point ultimately fulfilled in Jesus, going all the way back to God's plan for humanity uh, in creation. There's a, there's, a, there's a theological depth to his point here, but it doesn't change the fact that the validity of that promise today comes from the back, fact that God is the same yesterday, today, and forever, and that his plan for people and the gifts that he wants to give are all available are all available to us. That's what we mean when we say the word of God is powerful. Because unlike the other promises you encounter in your life, these ones aren't subject to change with circumstances. They're they're rooted in the character of God, which is trustworthy and faithful so that they can be trusted upon. And so when we say the word of God is powerful, we mean that it is speaking to us today. And it speaks in a bunch of different ways. We've, we've mentioned one of them, uh, which is promises, and that's exactly how the author of Hebrews reads this. Look at chapter 4, verse 1. Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, right, the sale isn't over, the coupon hasn't expired, the promise of his rest still stands, he says, let us fear lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. And then notice his point in verse 2, for good news came to us just as to them. Now, promises and good news kind of go hand in hand, but there is another aspect of what we find in God's word. The word we have here for good news is the word uh, we get gospel from, okay? Uh, And so when we talk about the gospel of Jesus Christ, the author of Hebrews here applies that to the good news that was given to Israel, and there's a surprising parallel between those two. Go back to what it was like for Egypt, Okay, or excuse me, for Israel is there in Egypt. Here they are, slaves in Egypt, and God promises to do a mighty work, bring them out by a powerful hand. And not just that, but he's going to bring them out and he's going to bring them to a land that was promised to their ancestors, and he's going to give them this land full of milk and honey. Now when we get to the New Testament, the, uh, the audience here of, the, uh, of Hebrews have a lot in common. Not because they remember and historically stem from the first exodus, but from the final one. Because Jesus has come and he doesn't just deliver a people from Pharaoh, but from sin and death and hell. And in the same way, because Jesus has done this miraculous and mighty work, entailed are all of these promises, all of these places where we live in the now but not yet, almost like Israel on the way to the promised land but haven't yet arrived. And so the danger for the audience is the same, that all of these promises that are built on the back of Jesus Christ, everything that Paul calls our blessed hope that's laying out in front of them has not yet been obtained. And the danger of not entering in remains the same. And so, um, so here, the idea of good news is something God has done to be received, to be built upon. Okay? Uh, another obvious way uh, that we see God's word working here is in the form of warning. Right? That's clearly the purpose of Psalm 95. It says, don't be like those guys. That's a warning. 
okay? In fact, Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 that the Old Testament was written down for us on whom the end of the age has come, in other words, Jesus, written for us so that we would be admonished not to follow into idolatry like they did. In other words, as an example, both good and bad, as a warning. And then the other obvious place where we find the word of God here, which I find to be significant for us, is a, is a command. Okay. Yes, there is a promise. I have rest and it's available to you, but there's also a command. Be strong and courageous. Enter in and take the land. That's why Israel's response is not just labeled here as unbelief, although it is, but also disobedience. Okay. Now, all of that is tying us into um, an important facet that we need to understand here, which is what makes God's word powerful in our life is when it's connected with faith. In fact, the author of Hebrews says that much. Notice what he says. Uh, back in chapter 4, following verse 2, For good news came to us just as it did them, but the message they heard did not benefit them. Here's the powerful word of God. Here's the promises that are built upon the faithful one. Here's the truths that are built upon the truthful one. Here is the living word of the living God. But it's of no benefit to them. Why? Because they were not united by faith with those who listened. Now, if you have a different translation here tonight, there's a couple of manuscripts that say something different. What they say is it did, uh, they did not meet, it did not meet with faith in the hearers. It was not mixed with faith in their hearing. They heard the word of God, but because they didn't join it to faith, it was of no good. Okay. Now, we need to be really careful here. I'm not suggesting to you that faith is the active ingredient. We always need to watch out for reducing faith down to some sort of positivism, positivism like 70s radio. You know, just don't stop believing, man. Everything will be fine, right? That's not the idea here. The idea isn't that faith does something. Faith works because God's trustworthy, because he's faithful, okay? And so this isn't active ingredient. This is access, and the problem here is, in all of these ways that the word works, in all of the ways that the God, God speaks, they all evoke and require and call for a response in us. Okay? And so faith looks different in those different things. Faith operates in a warning as in heeding the warning. Faith operates in a promise in, in waiting for its fulfillment. Faith operates in a commandment in obedience. Now, I want to go back to that promise one because it's the most important one in the text, and it also helps us to understand something here. It explains to us why it is that God speaks. Okay. The relationship between faith and word is not just that faith gives us access to the word of God. Faith, the author of Hebrews will go on to say, is necessary to please God. Without faith, it's impossible to please God. In other words, what God wants is not just X outcome. But there's something about the process that he's doing. And it's not that hard to illustrate. Okay. Think of Abraham. Back in Genesis chapter 12, Abraham is a worshiper of other gods. 
living in a foreign land, and he just encounters the word of God. God just speaks into his life and says, Abraham, come out away from your family. Come out away from where you're living. Come to a land that I will show you, future tense. And he says, and when you get there, I will bless you, and I will multiply your descendants, and I will bless them. And anyone who blesses them will be blessed, and anyone who curses them will be cursed. And through you and your descendants, all the nations of the world will be blessed. Okay. Now, the very first step of the fulfillment in all of those promises is very simple. Abraham needs a son. Abraham and his wife Sarai, they are childless. And so this idea of many descendants is bottlenecked with any descendants. That's where things are at. But as you read through the story of Abraham's life, it's 25 years to the birth of Isaac. Why? Why doesn't God say, hey, Abraham, I'm going to give you a son when you wake up tomorrow? In fact, don't we see Abraham wrestle and struggle over the course of those 25 years? How many bad things would have been avoided? For, for starters, most of Israel's enemies. <laughs> Just to begin with, they all stem from this period of time, right? There is no Ishmael. Uh, there is no Edom. All of these things kind of stem from these missteps that begin right there in the book of Genesis. In fact, there's an occasion where Abraham is so frustrated, he's crying out to God, and he says, God, you've promised, and right now, all of my inheritance goes to my servant, Eleazar. There's another occasion where his wife is just so dumbfounded by what's going on, she goes, maybe, maybe what God meant is not, I will give you a son, but we need to give him a son, so I've got a plan. You see, my, my maidservant here, Hagar, why don't you sleep with her, and we'll adopt the child as our own, and we'll raise that up as the descendant that God has promised us. All of those things happen in this period of time. But there's something else that happens as well. Okay. Both through the delay, which leads an old elderly couple to being very elderly, and a barren wife to being a post-menopausal wife, not only do they really understand that this is a work that only God could do and only God has done, but also we see as Abraham grows in faith and dependence upon God. Oftentimes, when we look for a picture of strong faith in the Bible, where do we turn to? We turn to Genesis 22. God speaks to Abraham. He says, Abraham, take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love. Take him to a mountain that I will show you and sacrifice him to me. And we look at that and we go, I can't even imagine. Don't ever forget that that's not the first test of Abraham's faith. It's the final. That's after 25 years of learning what God is capable of and what God does and how God reveals himself, right? There's a reality here. Faith cultivates dependence. I'll give you another example, one from the Exodus story itself. After God has brought Israel out of Egypt, he guides them, leading them by a pillar of smoke and, uh, and fire, and he leads them, and he leads them right up against the Red Sea. And while this is happening, the Egyptians get their acts together, they mount their chariots, and they come after them in full force. God's instructions to Israel at that point are stand still. Have you ever thought about what that would be like? Here you are, unarmed slaves, and your masters are coming 
They're one of the best known armies of the day and age, in full force, in full wrath. And you're standing with a sea at your back, and you can see them, and the cloud of smoke coming, and they're getting closer all the time. And Moses says, this is the word of God, stand still. Stand still and see the salvation of your God. Right? Them staying put provides the opportunity to see who God really is. I'll give you another example. This one from the New Testament. There's an occasion where Jesus is preaching along the Sea of Galilee. And there's so many people pressing up against him. He's, re- he's literally being pressed into the ocean. It's almost like the Exodus story. He's, he's right there and he sees Peter sitting there mending his nets. And so he says, Peter, let me in your boat and row out a ways. He, he anoints Peter as sound guy, right? And so Peter rows him out and then he can address the crowd safely and clearly so that they can all hear him. But interestingly enough, that talk, not recorded in scripture. We don't know what Jesus said to those crowds, but when he finishes, he dismisses them, and he turns to Peter, and he says, Peter, why don't you put your nets down for a catch? Now, Peter is a lifelong fisherman from a family of fishermen in an area that is mostly fishermen. He knows it's midday, and that means the fish have gone to where it's cool, which is out of the depths of the nets uh, that, that were used in the Sea of Galilee to fish. And he also knows that on top of that, he just fished all night and caught nothing. Okay. But this is what he says. He says, Jesus, we fished all night and caught nothing. Nevertheless, at your word, he puts down the nets. Because you said so, he puts down the nets. And what happens? The nets are so overflowing with fish that his boat begins to sink. And he has to call his friends James and John to row out so that the boat doesn't go down with the fish he just caught. Right? And what happens next? It says that Peter fell down on his knees before Jesus and he said, depart from me, O Lord, because I am a sinful man. What does he see there? He sees who Jesus is. Jesus as the one who who does above and beyond what Peter could have imagined, but at his word. Okay, that's the value, that's the significance of faith. And that doesn't just play out in the promises. It plays out in the commands. It plays out in the warnings. It plays out in all of these places. The value of faith is it takes God at his word, and when God proves himself to be who he says he is, we learn who he is. Okay. Now, when we talk about the word of God being powerful, as we've, uh, as we've mentioned here, it's, it's accessed by faith, and therefore, the danger of unbelief because that keeps us on the outside. Because, and I, I've been trying to be careful with my language. I don't want to say that that hinders God, but it definitely hinders God accomplishing his word in our life, at least in a limited sense. And so the danger to the people of Israel was here are the promises of God, here are all the works that he's done in front of you demonstratively so far and in the wilderness, it's almost hard to understand. They're constantly complaining and wondering if God brought them out in the desert just to kill them off. And it's like, have you been paying attention? Have you seen what's going on? Right? But David recognizes that the temptation for Israel a thousand years later is still the same. That rest is still available, and many aren't entering in. 
and those who are on the path are, are pulling back and going astray. In fact, we get our word apostate from the Greek word that's used in this passage. Okay. Remember here that the author of Hebrews is not warning about non-Christians missing out from God's promises, but Christians walking away. That's his emphasis in the entire book, but it's also his emphasis here. In fact, notice what it says in verse 12. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. You see the relationship there? It's unbelief in the living word falling away from the living God. They go together. Now, we need to do something to really unpack this here. And to do so, we actually need to turn all the way to the end and look at, at verse 13. Excuse me, verse 12. Okay. So he lays out his whole case. He makes his argument. He makes his uh, exhortation. In fact, he finishes in verse 11 saying, Let us therefore strive to enter that rest. Now, if I was preaching on the rest that he's talking about tonight, that's something I would want to savor. Striving to rest. What an intentionally provocative sentence. Okay. But we got to move on. Let us strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. Okay, now that's something we also need to wrestle with tonight. The author of Hebrews sees this as a present tense danger for you and me. Okay, that's the thing about warnings. As much as you can look around Seattle, you're not going to find a sign that says, warning, polar bears are dangerous. Right? Because it's not imminent. The chance of you encountering a polar bear on the streets of Seattle are relatively slim, so the warning isn't posted. When we warn, we mean two things. This is actually something dangerous, and it's actually something that could happen to you. And so the author of Hebrews is warning here. Now, we'll come back to that, but I want to point out what he says at the end here in verse 12. He says, for the word of God is living and active. Now, those words in and of themselves are really surprising, considering that we're talking about Psalm 95, considering that we're talking about written words, okay? He basically says here the psalm, or if, if you want, the scriptures or the book is alive. Now, generally, we put all books in the same category as inanimate objects. But here the author of Hebrews says, no, the scriptures are different. They're alive. Why? As we already saw, the living word is connected to the living God. In fact, that's not just an idea the author of Hebrews presents. When Stephen is standing before the Sanhedrin, and they're going to determine whether he lives or dies, and he's recounting the Israel of history, to sh or the history of Israel, to show their consistent hardness of heart and resistance to those God chooses, leading up to Jesus, he says that Moses received the living words on Mount Sinai. When Peter is talking about the salvation uh, of the people he addresses in 1 Peter, he says, For you have not been saved by a perishable seed, but an imperishable one, the living and enduring word of God. Why is it that the scriptures are different than all the other books on your shelf? Because they are the word of God. Because God is alive for all of the reasons we've talked about. But notice the second one. The word of God is living and active. Okay, Generally, Grammatically, we don't refer to books as being active. When we read this simple sentence, John read the book, the actor in that sentence is John, the action is reading, and the book is the one passively 
being read. But here he says something different about the word of God. He says that the word of God is the active one. The word of God does something. It's the one working, and we are the ones, not necessarily passive, but being worked on. Okay? That makes it different. Now, the thing we need to recognize here is that the danger, the warning he keeps making, is because the scriptures aren't the only active power in our life. It's because the word isn't the only voice in our life. I'll show you what I mean. Turn back to chapter 3, verse 12. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you. Notice that. That's active. Leading you to fall away from the living God, but exhort one another every day as long as it's called today. Now pause. You're probably familiar with these verses. We quote them a lot as Christians. I want you to notice that today there is the today of Psalm 95, right? As long as the window is open, as long as we live in that period where God's rest is available and received in faith, we need to exhort one another daily as long as it's today so that it says none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Now, may be hardened, that's passive again. That's something that happens to us, not something we do, okay? And what does it say hardens us? The deceitfulness of sin. And so notice there, that's a personification of sin, and now sin is doing what? Telling lies. You see all of the contrasts that are built into these verses? The response to God's worth is faith, God's worth is faith and obedience, but this is disobedience and unbelief, okay? Uh, um, in the last line, we saw that God exposes the heart, but here it's an unbelieving heart. Uh, there it's active in our life. Here we are hardened. There it is the truth of God's word. Here it is the deceitfulness of sin, okay? What is it, what does it mean here when it says that sin is deceitful? Okay. Now, this is different than the sin of deception. That would be to put the cart before the horse. The idea here is that there's something enticing about sin, that there's something that tricks us, there's something deceives us, and it doesn't just, it's not just that. It's not like um, Lucy pulling out the football for Charlie Brown over and over again. Okay. It's not just that choosing disobedience over obedience or choosing idolatry over worship of the true and living God or following your sinful lusts and desires instead of God's will. It's not just that those things will disappoint you. Notice it says further that it will actually harden our hearts. Or to put it, I think, in a more modern idiom, clog our ears. Okay, there's something about this that makes us resistant to the word of God. That's the danger here. Let me, let me point it to you this way. So I mentioned that uh, the author of Hebrews is not the only one who talks about the word of God being living and active. Actually, Jesus himself does. He tells a parable of a sower who goes out and sows seeds, right? And some land on the hard path, some in the shallow soil, some amongst the weeds, and some in the good soil. And we see what happens. And when he unpacks the parable for his disciples, what does he say? He says, the seed is the word of God, okay? And so just like a seed that grows and does something, 
it also needs a good place to grow in. It doesn't grow on the hard path because it doesn't penetrate, okay? In other words, Jesus' parable is about the heart condition of the hearer. That's what the author of Hebrews is talking about here. And the warning is the recognition that if the word of God isn't active in our life and regularly playing out in our life, that doesn't leave us neutral. It doesn't leave us untouched. It actually leaves us vulnerable. And in that vulnerability, paradoxically, we get a hardening. A hardening that makes us resistant to God's word, makes us unbelieving and disobedience. One of the ways I think we can think about this is with the concept of cognitive, or cognitive dissonance. Okay? Now, because of the world we live in where plausibility structures and a unified theory of life aren't as important as they used to be, this illustration is waning in its power. However, the idea of cognitive dissonance is still helpful. It's that your actions and your beliefs generally have to coincide. When they don't, you feel this dissonance, okay? You believe something, but the way you're living doesn't line up, and there are two different ways to resolve that. One is to change your behavior to align with your beliefs, but the other is to change your beliefs to align with your behavior. And the danger is us as human beings, uh, like, the, like the hymn says, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it, prone to leave the God I love, we are often carried away by our unbelieving uh, heart. We are often hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. We are often coming to the word of God and changing our view of it, changing our opinion of it, changing our receptivity to it because we got skin in the game. Okay. Now that doesn't say that that's the only thing that leads to us wrestling with or struggling with or fighting with the word of God. The Bible is full of people who, who doubt. Doubt and unbelief are not the same thing. Okay. Doubt looks to God and says, prove me wrong. Unbelief doesn't look to God at all. It just walks away. Okay. Doubt is something that is a normal and natural part of the Christian life. In fact, faith comes through processing through where our ability to understand ends. Go back to Genesis, Abraham's life. It's a wrestle. It's supposed to be. That cultivates faith. But obviously, unbelief can't cultivate faith. It's moving down the wrong direction. It's moving in the wrong way. But the danger that's presented here, okay, I, I want to I put it here again. It's, it's that in your life, we see two influences. Remember again, he's talking to us, church, Christians, who have known the promises of God, who have tasted and seen that the Lord is good. And he says, watch out lest this happen. And he calls us to exhort how often? How regularly? Daily. Okay. Now, one other thing that I want to point out really quickly is I want you to notice how communal this exhortation is. He's speaking of the danger for each of us as individuals, but he says, lest any of us fall away. He sees us exhort one another as a group effort, as something we should all be pursuing, something we should all be doing. Okay. It's interesting that when people came to Jesus and said, Jesus, are there few? Are there few who are going to be saved or many? Jesus says, forget that. You strive to enter the narrow gate. 
In the same way, when we get to the book of Jude, Jude is a letter where plans changed. Jude opens his letter and he says, I meant to write you all about our common salvation. Just a general exhortation of what we believe in Jesus Christ. And he says, but because of the false teachers that are present, I thought I should write you to contend for the faith. Okay? And so you're expecting something that is basically a call to fight for what you believe. And if you read through the book of Jude, he lays out where these false teachers are operating, how harmful they are to the body, how they're similar to these false teachers in the Old Testament, and their fate is the same. He lays all this out. But when he finally gets to the exhortation, he doesn't say, bang them over the head with the truth. He doesn't say, get in there and, and fight back. He doesn't say, you know, um, book an evening on crossfire or anything like that. His application instead is this. He says, but as for you, deepen yourself in the faith and keep yourself in the love of God. Now, there's one last twist to this. Yes, the word of God is living and active. And yes, a seed that grows is a great picture of that. In fact, it's not just Jesus who uses that metaphor. It's also Isaiah. In Isaiah 55, God speaking to Israel says, just as the water falls on the ground and turns seeds into bread, so also my word goes from my mouth and will accomplish just what I mean for it to. Produces, it brings life. It's that imperishable word of God that Peter talks about that has given us our salvation. All of those things. But when the author of Hebrews says the word of God is living and active, he's not talking about the productive places that God brings life through the word. Look at it again with me. He says, verse 12, for the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword piercing to the division of soul and spirit, joints and marrow, Okay, why division of soul and spirit? We're talking about cutting very deeply, okay, to the deepest pieces of your molecular being, of your spiritual reality, as if we could separate soul and spirit. That's how sharp, he says, the word of God is here. And then notice what he says that the word of God does, discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. He doesn't say that it's producing life in the heart, he says it's showing us what's actually going on. In fact, he pushes it further. Look at verse 13. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him whom we must give account. Okay. In other words, the word of God is living and active, not just in life-giving, but in judgment. He says the word of God employed in our life shows what's really going on in our heart. It discerns the thoughts and intentions. Interestingly enough, that last word there, to whom we must give account, it's also the Greek word, word. And so if I could put this in a way where you get the play on words, he says the word of God is living and powerful and it discerns our hearts and we'll all lay bare before it because before him, the speaker of that word, we must answer. We must speak our own words. Using this illustration of the sword, let me tell you what effectively we're saying tonight. We're saying either the word of God can operate like a scalpel in operation now, or there can be an autopsy. 
Either way, we will stand before the word of God. Remember, it's active here. It's not, does the Bible open before you? It's, you will be laid bare before the Bible, exposed before the living God. What's really going on in your heart will be tested. That's the context of this idea here. And it's worth pointing out here that 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 uh, helps us to understand something that we should get, which is that the Christian life and an encounter, very simply, with the Word of God is not necessarily comfortable. It's not necessarily enjoyable. Okay? It's like a scalpel. It pierces us to the deepest level. When those who are listening to Peter preach in Acts chapter 2 Uh, hear the gospel message, it says that they were pierced to the heart. Now that's a level of very deep conviction, but it's also probably a very painful description, right? Um, The idea here that we need to understand uh, is, is that one of the primary ways the word of God works, and this is just as true of its promises as it is of its commands, is confrontational. It challenges us. When we open up the word of God, our general posture as human beings is as wrong and needing to be righted, is as astray and needing to be corrected, is as deceived and needing to be illuminated, is as stubborn and rebellious and needing to turn around. Okay. But, but like a surgery, It's pain that brings life. Now, I believe in the Christian life, God never brings harm. But that doesn't mean it doesn't hurt, okay? Just like a doctor. A doctor should do no harm. It's built right into the Hippocratic Oath. That doesn't mean that surgery is painless. That's why we pay, uh, you know, those who knock us out so heavily. We appreciate their work uh, so much. Um, uh, But... But that's the idea here is that we now submit and surrender ourselves to the word of God and it does its good work just like surgery does. It brings health and healing through cutting deeply. But we need to understand that all will stand laid bare before the word of God. That there the thoughts and the intentions of the heart that Jeremiah says we can't even know ourselves will be exposed. Okay. When we say the word of God is powerful, this is what we mean. We mean all of these things. We mean it collectively. Let's pray. Father, I ask that we wouldn't just open our Bibles, but that we would allow our Bibles to open us up. I pray, Lord, that we wouldn't just do the healthy and important work of interpreting the scriptures. We have to do that. We have to come to an understanding of what the Bible means, but it's not done. It's not finished until we allow the scriptures to interpret us unbelief and disobedience, the deception of sin, the hardening of hearts, 
All of these things make us resistant to your word. And that's why Jeremiah says, Behold, my word, isn't it like a fire that burns? Isn't it like a hammer that breaks? But we thank you, Lord, that because your word is yours, because the living word is the product of the living God, it's relevant to our life today. The promises are still available to us. The commands come from a good and loving creator who built life with a plan and seeks our good. The warnings come from a loving father who has our best interest at heart. And the good news proclaims a work that you have done and gives us access, access to stand on the sacrifice of another with an alien righteousness that we do not deserve and have not earned, freely offered because just like you delivered Israel from Egypt, so Jesus has delivered us from Satan, from sin, from death. And if we confess with our mouth and believe with our heart, confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in our heart that he rose from the dead, we shall be saved. pray that you'd continue to do that work and that our mouths would be full of the word of God as we exhort one another daily, that we would feel the reality of this warning and the danger of deceitfulness of our sin in, in our life and that we would recognize we are prone to wander, recognize that we are prone to resistance and hardness of heart and that we would constantly till the soil of our own hearts, lay it bare before you and ask you to do your work through your word. Pray that you'd help us with this in Jesus' name, amen. All right, we're gonna go ahead and move on to the Q&A right now. It'll take me just a minute to get set up. If you haven't had a chance to ask a question and you have one on your mind, now would be a good time to send it in. Okay, I've already got a few questions here from this morning. Uh, here's two separate questions that are relatively similar, so we'll handle them together. Uh, the first one says, does hearing impart more faith than reading? And what's God's word meant to be spoken and heard? And then the second question says, does God's word need to be spoken to have an effect? Does God's word have more effect when it is spoken? Would it be more powerful to speak God's word to ourselves rather than just reading it? Is listening to an audio Bible more powerful than just reading the word, assuming both are motivated by faith? Okay, so just laying some groundwork here, we first should understand, especially if we're just talking about the New Testament, and even the scriptures of Israel before that, generally most people's encounter with the word of God would have been audible, okay? Uh, 
uh, illiteracy was, was the normal station of life, uh, education was not broadly available, and having your own copy of the scriptures would have been relatively rare. So primarily the place where you would have encountered the word of God is in the public gathering of worship weekly. In fact, we can see the marks of this even in the New Testament. So in 1 Timothy chapter 4, Paul exhorts Timothy as a young pastor to devote himself to the public reading of scripture. And that language that's used there speaks of reading aloud the scripture to an audience, okay? Um, in the same way, Paul often references understanding that his letters will be read aloud to the church in hearing. In fact, he sometimes encourages other churches to read the letters he wrote to other churches aloud, okay? Um, on top of that, just baseline, is the word of God more impacting audibly, okay? Uh, for starters, the rabbis had a saying, if you want to forget something, read it to yourself, okay? They recognized, and in fact, you will encounter this in Israel today, uh, and it has been true throughout history, the primary way that they would engage with the scriptures, even when they're reading alone, is to read them aloud, in fact, oftentimes it involves a full embodying of those words. There's, there's much more physically going on than just speaking the word. Um, and that's because of the recognition of how language works in our life. Uh, if you weren't here this morning, um, I, in talking about Psalm 88, which is a lament, one of the darkest of all the prayers in the Bible, uh, where the author uh, never comes to any resolve never comes to a place of hope. In fact, the last line of the psalm is, and darkness is my only friend. But I was talking about the film that came out last year, The Shape of Water, uh, and in it, this mute woman is trying to convince her uh, neighbor across the hall to help her save this aquatic monster love interest. It's kind of a strange film. Um, but she's doing so with sign language, and she's very close to her neighbor, and so her neighbor understands everything she's saying, and she's very excited, and she's trying to get the point across, and he's just not interested. He doesn't know why it would be worthwhile to try and do this. He doesn't want to risk anything, and she says, say aloud, say aloud what I'm signing, and he says, no, you know I understand, and she keeps pressing him, and when he does, as he voices the voiceless, he can't resist the moving, the power of it, the logic of it. He gives a voice to the voiceless and it convicts him. You know. The word of God is similar in that way that voicing it doesn't just, it, it just doesn't do the same thing as reading it to yourself because you hear it, okay? It, it reinforces it, it brings it through another experiential <coughs> gate. Um, another value in reading the word of God aloud uh, is that it forces you to ask questions that are really important like tone of voice, okay, like emphasis, like emotion. Anytime I hear someone reading from the book of Galatians and they read it this way, oh foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? I get irritated, okay? Something's being lost in translation there. When we read in Genesis chapter three and God says, Adam, where are you? Do you understand how much the tone of voice matters? Should we hear that as a police officer in a megaphone who has the house surrounded? or the broken heart of a loving father. It's a big difference between the two. Like I said, in emphasis, what's the most important word? I drew out one, one case of it tonight when he says, uh, when he says, hold on, we can look at it right now. 
when he's talking here about the Sabbath rest, uh, and God rested on the seventh day from all his works, and again in this passage, quoting Psalm 95, it says, they shall not enter my rest. But if you're trying to convey the point the author is making, it's they shall not enter my rest. That's what he wants to draw out. Not that God has some objective general store of rest that's available to comers. It's somehow his personal rest. That's why it connects it to the rest, okay? So when we read that my and put the emphasis there, we hear what the author meant, okay? Um, beyond that, beyond that, I think we need to recognize uh, tying everything together that there's a clear value in the embodiment of the word of God in a speaker, okay? What I'm suggesting is when the word of God is read aloud, we voice the voice of God. We image God as speaker, um, and I think there is a spiritual significance to that. Now, that being said, clearly the Bible was meant to be written down. It bears the, the earmarks of this everywhere. In fact, um, Moses is specifically told by God, write this down. Jeremiah is specifically told, write this down. Um, uh, uh, much of the Bible is composed as literature, okay, the Gospels, Revelation. They play the rules of literature. Even when they're recording things that are historical, they do it in writing, not just as a written record of something else, okay? And so the written value of Scripture, uh, it needs to be considered as well. Uh, and, and I would just suggest from, from history and probably your own personal experience, I don't see any reason to... to, to um, Make a false dichotomy there, okay? People are sometimes completely arrested by the Spirit of God in something they read to themselves. And there are plenty of other testimonies of times where, where it was through the public reading of Scripture or the preaching of God's Word that somebody is impacted. I, I, would, I think it would be a shame to limit God's Word and what it can do. But we do see that it was by the plan of God a written work and that by the practice of the church a written work to be read aloud, to be spoken to one another, to uh, let, as it says in Colossians, our hearts be filled with the word of God so that we speak to one another in psalm songs and spiritual hymns, hymns and wisdom. Okay. All right. Here's another one from this morning. Where does God stand on the issue of homosexuality? I'm gay, does he accept me for who I am or do I need to try, and ch try to change to fit into his gospel? I'm lost, thank you. This is a difficult question to answer in a Q&A format. I mean, in, especially, I mean, just notice for those of you who didn't compose this question how personal it is, how vulnerable it is. Um, but there are a few things that I think can be said and I wanna draw your attention to a um, a particular story in the book of Acts to make a point. In Acts chapter 8, there's this revival going on in the area uh, which is in the land of Israel but not actually a part of Israel known as Samaria. Okay? And so Philip is there. He's the primary evangelist. All these people are coming to Jesus and then he just hears God speak to him very clearly and he says, go out on the road uh, which is wilderness and he heads out there and while he's there, he encounters an Ethiopian eunuch in his chariot. And this Ethiopian eunuch is riding along in his chariot, returning from Jerusalem on his way back to Ethiopia where he works uh, for the queen. 
and he's reading from a scroll of Isaiah. Now, that says some really significant things right there, okay? For starters, uh, the fact that he has his own copy of Isaiah shows that he has tremendous wealth and that he's willing to use it to invest in, in the scriptures, okay? Second, he's returning from Jerusalem probably on religious pilgrimage and not on government business. In other words, he is a seeker of God. He's been looking into uh, the religion of Israel and he's been to the temple. Now, here's a couple of things. If, if all of those are true, here's a couple of things. First off, most likely he would have encountered in the law where it says that someone like him, a eunuch, or anyone whose testicles had been crushed, is not allowed in the assembly. Okay? And that was held out and carried out in the first century, so he wouldn't have actually been able to even go in the court of the Gentiles that surrounds the temple. What he found when he tried to get to know the God of the Bible is exclusion. Okay? Uh, on top of that... What's interesting about him reading in Isaiah is Isaiah, just a few chapters of the place after the place we find him reading, starts to talk about a day where God makes promises specifically to foreigners, he's an Ethiopian, and eunuchs. And Isaiah says, in that day, the day after God's promises are fulfilled, the day after Jesus comes, in that day, let the eunuch not say, I am a dry tree, but I will make a name for him and I will make him as a pillar in my house. Do you hear the transition there? Not allowed in the assembly. A pillar in my house. Give him a name. Okay. So why is the eunuch reading Isaiah 53 and wondering if he's speaking there of himself uh, or, or someone else who's going to die and by his stripes we are healed? Because he knows that when this one comes and when this one does this work, then there's a future for him with the God of Israel. In fact, what happens after Philip explains, beginning with that text and moving through the Bible, the gospel message? What is the question the eunuch asks? What prohibits me from being baptized? Do you hear that for what it is? Is this for me? Can I enter in? What would stand in the way of me being a follower of Jesus? This is not about racism. It's about the fact that he's a eunuch. Okay. I think we need to understand um, that the general requirement for following Jesus is fulfilled by all human beings. Jesus said himself, I did not come for the righteous, but for sinners. And so the pre-qualification to believe and follow Jesus is need. But I would suggest to you that like the Ethiopian eunuch, God has room for all comers. Now, that's different than answering the question of, um, uh, of what happens next. But I want to be clear here as well. Okay? When God calls anyone, he meets us where we're at. He offers us salvation, forgiveness, not on our own works or our own condition, but on what Jesus Christ has done for us. But then he calls us to follow him. Okay? What, what we need to understand and what the church has a tendency to get wrong is that God doesn't call the homosexual to heterosexuality. Nowhere. He calls them to holiness, just like he does everyone else. And so there are questions that press on this issue. Okay. There are questions of, of what is God's standard for marriage and sexuality. And that's a much longer conversation. But it's one that follows 
receiving Jesus and following Jesus, not precedes it. Even for those of you who this language may make you uncomfortable, even if you just start from the place and say, but homosexuality is a sin, I would say that's imprecise and unhelpful language. But John chapter 8, here we have a woman caught in adultery. How does Jesus respond? Where are all the men that condemn you, he asks. She says, they've left. And he says, neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. Both parts are important, but the order is as well. Okay. And so the message to whoever it is who's asked this question, whether you're present tonight or you're listening in, is does God accept you for who you are or do you need to change and fit into his gospel? No. No, you don't. As I said earlier, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. But like the rest of us, that's a beginning and not an ending. That's a start, and then, then everything else follows. And if you're listening tonight and you're hearing this, I would love to talk further. This is, this is not even the place where I'd like to start this conversation. This is, this is eight conversations deep before I'd like to answer these things. Um, but, uh, but I'd encourage you to um, email me, wave a hand, introduce yourself to me, let's talk further. Ooh, a good one. Since it's our last night, there's all these things that didn't come up over the course of the series that I feel like I didn't get a chance to talk about. Not once did we talk about translation very deeply, which is a bummer. Uh, but let's talk about this. How do we explain areas of the Bible where some manuscripts have extra text, like Mark 16, 9 through 20, but others do not include it? Now, interestingly enough, this also touches the story that I just mentioned in John chapter 8. Not all of our old manuscripts have the verses of John chapter 8 that I just mentioned with the woman caught in adultery. Some of them actually have it appended at the end of the Gospel of Luke, and others just don't have it at all. Um, what's being referred to here is the ending of Mark chapter 16. And it's a very interesting study because we don't just have two possible versions. We actually have five. Okay. Um, and, uh, and some of them are much shorter. As is mentioned here, the shortest reading ends at Mark 16 verse 8. And if you read that, that's a jarring ending. It ends with, and the women fled from the garden and told no one. The end, curtains down. What do we do with this? Okay, the, the first thing we need to recognize uh, is when we look at manuscript evidence, it's not like playing tel telephone. I've mentioned this before. Okay. We have multiple manuscripts, and as they were written, here's a copy of Scripture, and then from that copy of Scripture, unlike telephone, it's not just another copy, but multiple copies. Okay, And so what that means is even if every copy is wrong, they're probably not all wrong in the same place. And so textual criticism that involves the manuscripts and comparison and contrasting, uh, contrasting, we should expect to be actually a very fruitful field. Now, they're just, just for simple understanding, uh, it's not as simple as democracy. It's not, which, which one do we have the most of, right? Not all manuscript families are of the same quality. And if Guy's a terrible speller and misses a lot of places and he's the only one who presents a unique reading, 
we're not going to give him the benefit of the doubt in the same way of one that seems to be faithful and consistent and argues. Also, um, sometimes uh, a general rule of manuscript evidence is the hardest reading is the preferred. And the reason is this, okay? Because if you encountered something in a manuscript and you went, oh, that's funky, correcting it to what you think it should have said is much more likely than making it harder to understand. I'll give you one more example and then we'll get to Mark 16, okay? One more example. In Mark chapter 1, a leper comes to Jesus, falls at his feet, and says, if you're willing, you can make me clean. And the next verse in Mark chapter 1 in your English Bible says, and Jesus had compassion on him and he healed him. We have one, one manuscript in all of the history that says, and Jesus was angry with him, so he healed him. And you read that and you go, that can't be what, it's, what it says. But actually, they, first off, in Greek, they're only a letter difference the word for compassion and hatred, or anger. Only a letter difference, okay? But second, when you look at the text, it says, uh, and he sent him away in the next verse, and the language there is not like, see you later, it's cast him out. It's the same one that's used throughout Mark for demons, okay? On top of that, in Mark's gospel of all places, Jesus is regularly angry. You remember when the man comes to Jesus and says, your disciples tried to cast this demon out of my son and they were unable and Jesus was angry and he said, how long will I put up with this foolish generation? That's Mark's gospel, okay? Uh, the last thing I would point out to you is it's much easier to imagine somebody who's trying to copy down uh, a passage and then goes, oh, I can't imagine that meant to be angry. It's probably a typo and changed it to love. It's a lot harder to imagine somebody was so mindless that they accidentally wrote angry when they meant compassionate, okay? And so there's a lot of evidence here, but many scholars suggest that's the better reading. And how do we make sense of this in the character of Jesus? What's the question on the table? If you're willing, you can make me well. Now, he has no question about his ability, but he does question his willingness, okay? Uh, it's interesting. These things have to be studied. The evidence in Mark 16 is much more difficult but what's, what I'd like to point out to you is I've grown, grown really attached to the short reading, as weird as it is. And the reason is because in Mark's gospel especially, because all of the disciples stand in as a foil for us, they are total failures over and over and over again. So that the book would end with their failure. Remember, this is written to a Christian audience who only exist as a church because these guys changed. Because they heard that Jesus was resurrected and it changed their lives, okay? The idea here is not that the author of Mark didn't know if Jesus really rose from the dead. That's not an option. The question is, would he want to end the story there to put the story in our laps? And that's how the book of Jonah is written. Jonah ends with God asking Jonah a question. Shouldn't I have compassion on all of the people? What about the children? What about the animals? The book ends. Why? Because who wrote the book of Jonah? Most likely it's Jonah himself. He's come to a different position, but he leaves the story open-ended because the story is for us. And we've got to deal with our own lack of compassion in our hearts. We have to take the questions to ourselves. And I would suggest to you that the best way to read Mark is to read it in that way. Okay? There's a lot that you can study in here. I would recommend the works of Michael Kruger, uh, who deals extensively with uh, manuscript evidence, with canon how our Bible came to be recognized over the first few centuries, the New Testament, uh, as well as with second century Christianity, uh, which is, you know, uh, the second chapter. Uh, it's Acts 29, if you will. It's, it's where things pick up. Um, so there's that. Okay.
Do I personally read the scriptures out loud in my devotions? Would you recommend this as a beneficial practice, specifically in daily devotions? Uh, I don't always. I have found um, that something I very much enjoy doing and find to be tremendously impactful is to use the audio Bibles on Bible Gateway and listen to them while I walk. And the reason why I like Bible Gateway is because it has a couple of readings, and let's be honest, we're not going to love every reader. Uh, and some of them there are just cheese to the nth degree, uh, so I can't listen to them. Others are pretty good. But the other thing I like about it is you have two different settings. You can set it on continuous, so it'll just keep rolling chapter by chapter, or you can set it to repeat the chapter. And I like using it both ways. And so when I'm studying to break down an entire book, like I did with the Gospel of Mark, I'll walk Capitol Hill and listen to the Gospel of Mark over and over and over again, okay? Before I start to go, okay, now how can I carve this up? Because that way I kind of have it all in view all the time. And the other thing that I love about it is you will be amazed how much you remember of what the scriptures say because you've repeatedly listened to it audibly. And so it's amazing how um, even those tones of voices, uh, there are parts of 1 Corinthians, which was the last time I practiced this very extensively, uh, that I have almost memorized just because I listen to them so thoroughly. So yes, I think it can be absolutely uh, beneficial. Um, but, but is it necessary? Not necessarily. And there's lots of places that we find ourselves where it's probably not beneficial. There's enough people speaking aloud to themselves on the bus, right? Um, or, or like if I want private time with my scriptures, that means that all five of my children are still sleeping. I'd like to keep it that way. Okay. Um, but it is, it's a good practice. It's something I would encourage you to do. Um, uh, and, uh, and it will help you to engage with the scriptures in a new way, like I said, because you'll start to say, what's the right way to read this aloud? What's the emotion here? What's the tone? Where's the emphasis lie? You'll be amazed the things you draw up. So just do it. All right. It looks like that's all of the questions for tonight. Um, not all of you have been here every week. Not everybody who's been here in past, week past is here tonight. Uh, but on their behalf, just thank you so much uh, for coming out and uh, participating in the series, for all of the good questions and giving me an opportunity to answer them. Um, as we go tonight, let me just pray for you. Father, I lift up each one that's here. And you know, one of the things that we haven't done in this series is uh, way if the claims the Bible makes are valid. But we have come to an understanding of the consequence of that truth. If the Bible is what it declares to be, then. And so I pray, Lord, that as all of us wrestle with these things, whether it's as first-timers who are exploring Christianity or those of us who have hit a wall in our understanding or a hesitation or, or find something concerning, I pray, God, uh, that you would continue to lead us and to guide us. And I ask, Lord, that every question we have would be a pursuit and not an excuse, that it would be an expression of doubt and not unbelief, and that you would continue to instruct us, like the psalmist in Psalm 119, instruct us in your word. We pray this in your name. Amen. Amen. Have a good night.